Good morning, Fair Oaks, and Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, it's my privilege to continue on uh, with you in our Advent series that we're calling What Child Is This? And so, like Pastor Chad said, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with me now to Luke chapter 22. And we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 38 together in just a moment. I'm sure many of you already know that my wife Callie and I are new parents. And as a result of our growing family, we've been thinking differently about how we approach the Christmas season this year. We've been asking each other what type of Christmas traditions we want to start as a family and even preparing ourselves for future issues like how we might protect our Christmas tree from our curious son if he decides that he wants to start crawling or perhaps even more daunting, walking in the very near future. Uh, Like most parents, we've also dreamed of how we can make this season more special and exciting for our family as we relive our childhood Christmas joys through the lens of our son. Seeing your kid's reaction to the lights on the Christmas tree or the curiosity that fills, fills their eyes when they spot a shiny ornament hiding in the noble fir branches can cause you to stop and slow down and pay attention to the careful uh, tiny details that you've forgotten lie in every decoration that you've hung. Children bring a different perspective to the Christmas season. Remember what it was like as a child when you received that gift that you thought you'd never get? The overwhelming response of celebration and joy as you held that cherished gift above your heads or squeezed it tightly to your chest. However, as I'm sure we can all attest as time goes by, the gift that once brought us so much joy sadly tends to become less and less meaningful and interesting to us until it is set aside and all but completely forgotten. And it's probably of no surprise to you that this type of reaction tends to actually be the average person's experience every Christmas season year after year. A recent study was done in 2018 by one poll with a depressing title, You Are Going to Forget About Most Holiday Gifts You Get This Year. And in this shocking study, this is true, the group found that one in six gifts that you receive each year will never be touched again after January 1st. 53% of all the gifts that you have received over the last year have been completely forgotten and removed from your memory. And so why bring this depressing news up? Well, it might be slightly humorous to think about all the pressure we put on ourselves into buying holiday gifts for others that will all but be forgotten this time next year. But there is another perspective and reality to the season And I want us to uh, think about the sobering thought that our response to the greatest gift that has been and will ever be given to us, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, Even as I say those words, some of you might immediately think, well, Jesus is the greatest gift of all. Yeah, I've heard that message before. And what I want for us to do today is to stop and pay attention to the realities of this truth and why it is that we proclaim Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the greatest gift ever given to man. And so as we continue on today in our Advent series titled, What Child Is This? We're going to be looking at the reality that this child, Jesus, is the Savior of the world. And it is my hope that in prayer that for those of us who are Christ followers, that we will not forget or grow numb to the significance of this reality that we've been given the gift of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, but that we can see and savor this truth with fresh eyes today. 
And for others of you here that our eyes might be open to behold the great gift offered to you and you would receive him with overwhelming enthusiasm and joy. And so let's go to God in prayer and ask him to help us do this now. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed to think about this gift that has been given to us through your son Jesus and how easy it is for us to grow numb to the reality of this great gift because we know this story so well. We know the, the, the truth here that um, apart from Christ coming into the world to save us, we had no hope. And yet we can lose our joy in thinking about this truth. And so I ask that as we look at your word together this morning, that you would help us to, um, to have greater vision of what it meant for Jesus to come into this world, that we would uh, truly treasure him and value him in this season, uh, that we would not just forget about the gift we've been given, but that we would cling to him. And so use my words now uh, to encourage your church and to bring glory to your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, as we jump into our text this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that might not be as familiar to some of you as other passage in, passages in telling the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke. And perhaps the unfamiliarity will help us think about Jesus being the Savior of the world in a fresh way today. So I'm excited to unpack this passage with you all as we think about how to savor this season and to marvel at the realities of what it means for Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. So open up your Bibles with me to Luke 2, starting in verse 22, and we will go to verse 38. It says this, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, whom she was a vir- from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So before we dive into this text, I just want to briefly point out exactly where we are and the birth narrative of Jesus. So look with me again at verses 22 through 24, 
where it states this. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. See, this story is taking place exactly 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And here we see both Mary and Joseph making their way up to the temple with Jesus to consecrate their firstborn son to the Lord, as well as to offer up sacrifices for their purification. Both of these practices in accordance and obedience to the law of Moses. And these details are significant in setting up our narrative. And so I want to quickly show you why before we move on. So first, let's look at Mary and Joseph's obedience to consecrate their firstborn son to God. You see, since the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt, God had commanded all of Israel to remember that he had been the one that delivered them from the land of bondage and rescued them from the oppression of Pharaoh. God commanded all of Israel to consecrate their firstborn son as a sign of remembrance and as a way to teach future generations that God was the one who had rescued and delivered them from slavery and oppression. And the purification laws that God had given to Israel in Leviticus also played a significant role in teaching Israel that God was pure and holy and that the only way to come to him was to be made clean by offering up a sacrifice for atonement as a covering for their sins. And now all of these practices had been going on for around 1,500 years. And for many in Israel, the significance and the symbolism of these commands had lost its intended meaning. God gave Israel these commandments to help them see that they could not save or redeem themselves. And the law and the prophets helped point Israel to its need for a rescuer, a savior to come. But not everyone in Israel lost sight of what the law and the prophets were ultimately pointing to. And what we will see through the rest of our text today are two characters in particular, Simeon and Anna, who had a deep understanding and longing to see the fulfillment of these signs come to fruition. They saw their need for God's salvation and longed for God to send their Savior to the world. And so my hope is that as we look at the rest of our text this morning we will be able to savor our Savior like Simeon and Anna both did. And so in order for us to savor our Savior and to not grow numb to the realities of the gift we've been given, I believe there are four things that we need to focus on together. So if you are going to savor your Savior this season, then you need to recognize your need for a Savior. You need to respond to your Savior in faith. You need to rejoice in your Savior and resound your Savior to the world. And so first, if you're going to savor your Savior, then you need to recognize your need for a Savior. So let's continue on through our text as we will see how both Simeon and Anna did just that. The Gospel of Luke is the only gospel to record this particular story where we meet these two characters, Simeon and Anna. And while we will focus on both of them, I first want to spend some significant time focusing on Simeon and the message that he proclaims. So apart from verses 25 through 35 and the brief description of Simeon in verse 25, we know nothing else of this man. But what we do know is significant. Mainly, we see the heart and character of Simeon. Look with me again at verse 25 and see how the Bible describes him. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon is described as righteous and devout, meaning he loved 
and feared God and desired to meditate on and obey his law throughout every aspect of his life. Simeon represents what the Bible calls the faithful remnant of Israel. He continued to be faithful to God through his obedience to the law and through his hope and faith in God fulfilling the many centuries old prophecies that foretold of a Messiah who was to come, who would save and redeem Israel. This faith was evidenced in his waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. You see, Simeon knew and cherished the many uh, messianic prophecies like the one found in Isaiah chapter 40, which states, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, while Israel suffered under exile and persecution because they had sinned against God and turned their back on him and his law, God would not leave them in the state of hopelessness. Because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his covenant with Israel, God promised that their punishment and suffering would not last forever. He would one day send a Messiah who would bring comfort to his people as he would stand in Israel's place and pay the full penalty for all of their sins. While many of the Jewish people and their religious leaders at that time knew of the, prophes- uh, knew of the prophecies and promised Messiah to come, they had missed his ultimate purpose and most vital need for his coming. They thought that the Messiah would bring comfort by delivering them from their oppressor, Rome. But Simeon knew that this Messiah's deliverance would be much more significant than that. In fact, Simeon recognized that this coming Messiah was not just going to be the Savior of Israel, but this Messiah was going to be the Savior of the world. We see this in verses 30 through 32 as Simeon proclaims, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon recognized the reality that both Jew and Gentile were in the same predicament. They both needed a savior. We'll look more into this section in a little bit, but I want to briefly pause now and ask you this question. If Jesus is the savior of the world, if both Jew and Gentile, aka all people, are in the same need of saving, then what is it that we need saving from? We will never be able to savor our savior until we recognize our true need for him. Many of the Israelites got the answer to this question wrong. They did not recognize their true need for Christ Jesus to come into the world. And they therefore denied and missed the heart and mission of the Messiah once he had arrived. While many of us might know the answer to this question off the top of our heads, we'd be doing ourselves a disservice to allow the realities of this answer to not impact us with the weight that it truly should carry. And so if Christ Jesus came To be the savior of the world, let me ask again, then what is it that we are being saved from? Remember the passage we looked at in Matthew uh, chapter 2, or Matthew 1, two weeks ago, uh, in verse 21, where the angel of the Lord appears uh, to Joseph, and, and he says this of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There it is. It's the answer to the question in its most simple form. Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. And I know that most of you know that in this room today. 
What I'm concerned about is that knowing this truth in and of itself does not keep us from growing numb to the life-altering reality that is contained within this truth. It's a struggle that we all bear. But we cannot and will not savor our Savior unless we recognize and remember our total helplessness in saving ourselves and our total dependence on Him to be the only one who could ever save us. The more we recognize just how much we've been forgiven and saved from, the more we will savor Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so I want to look at several verses together to help drive this point home. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every last one of us have missed the mark. We have failed to do what God created us to do. We have failed to bring Him glory with our lives. And instead, we have all willfully sinned through thought, action, word, and deed, living lives contrary to God's nature, robbing Him of the glory that He deserves, profaning His name. The Bible tells us that as a result of our sins, we are owed nothing but God's righteous wrath and the payment and penalty for our sins. Romans 6.23 shows us this where it states, For the wages of sin is death. Or Romans 5.12 which states, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And this just isn't talking about a physical death as terrible as that might be. But this death is also a spiritual death where there will be an eternal separation from God, an everlasting conscious torment in hell. Listen to the words of Jesus the Messiah where he states in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. None of us are immune. All of us are owed the just penalty and payment for our sins. We're owed nothing but God's righteous condemnation. Have you come to see this reality? Have you recognized the sobering fact that all who are not found in Christ Jesus, who have not placed their full and total faith in Him alone as their Savior, will stand before Him on Judgment Day and face His holy wrath with no way to escape His terrifying judgment? The very judgment that we are all equally owed. And this is just a glimpse of what it means for us to recognize our need for a Savior. The Old Testament prophets warned of this day to come, a great day which they called the day of the Lord. In fact, look with me at Malachi 4 where we will see the final prophecy given to Israel 400 years before God would send Jesus to save his people from their sins. Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set, a blaze, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And what a terrifying and sobering reality to think about. But God does not leave us in this deserved state of punishment and wrath with no way of escape. So don't despair. There is good news, church. God is a patient God, full of steadfast love, full of grace and mercy. Before that great day of judgment to come is the day of salvation. And this is why God sent Jesus into the world, to offer salvation to the world through him. Listen to how John puts it in his gospel, starting in chapter 3. For God so loved the world, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here is where I hope we see our recognition of our need for a savior in the full display of God's kindness toward undeserving sinners like you and me. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ not only died a substitutionary death on a cross in the place of sinners, but he also resurrected from the dead, conquering the grave, revealing that the penalty for sin had once and for all been fully paid. And so if you are a Christian in in this room today, do not forget or grow numb to the fact that you once walked in darkness with no hope, but God sent a Savior into this world to take on the great penalty for sin that you were owed, so that through him you might be saved. Recognize that you were owed what you were owed and savor your beloved Savior. And while I hope this helps us all recognize more our need for a Savior, is not enough just to recognize our need for him. We must also respond to him in faith. And so this brings me to my second point this morning. It's, if you're going to savor your Savior, then you need to respond to him in faith. So look with me starting in verse 26 as we will see how Simeon not only recognized his need for Savior, but how he responded to him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. What a special gift of grace that God gave to Simeon. God promised him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In faith, Simeon continued to daily seek the fulfillment of this promise as he anxiously awaited the arrival of the promised Christ. And we don't know how long uh, of a period went between Simeon's revelation from God and the fruition of his revelation. What we do know is that Simeon trusted God and placed his full faith and confidence in the coming Messiah as he exuberantly awaited his arrival. Simeon's faith became sight as he in faith entered the temple once again, but this time to finally lock eyes with the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. Simeon's faith was blessed by God as he had the unfathomable privilege to not only recognize and see his Messiah face to face, but he was blessed to actually hold him tightly in his arms. The Christ, the promised Messiah that generations upon generations before him had so eagerly prayed and waited for, God fulfilled his promise to Simeon that he would not die before he had the special encounter. His response in verse 29 testifies to his full faith and confidence of just who this baby he was holding truly was. Look at what he says in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
Simeon's statement here is profound. He is proclaiming that nothing else in the world for the rest of his life could ever top this moment. He has met his Savior. Simeon's faith in Jesus brought so much comfort and assurance to him that he knew he could die in peace with full assurance. He knew that this very baby he held in his hands would be the one who through whom, as we sang earlier today, God and sinners would be reconciled. So let me ask us all this question. Is this the type of response and demonstration of faith that we have had, knowing that the Savior has come? You see, while Simeon's, uh, while Simeon's encounter with the Christ and his demonstration of faith is shown in his reception of him, Simeon also recognized that not everyone who sees this child will have the same reaction in faith that he has had. Look with me at verses 34 through 35 as Simeon prophesies to Mary of this child's future. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. God revealed to Simeon that while many in Israel would recognize their need for a Savior and respond to him in faith, many also would hear the news that the Messiah had come. But when they encountered Jesus, they would reject him as Savior. They would not believe in him. And not only would many reject him to their own detriment, but they would go so far as to viciously hate him and the message he proclaimed. So much so that they willingly would have him crucified. This is why Simeon prepares Mary in verse 35 with the sad reality that her own soul would be pierced with a sword as this boy that she loved and raised would one day become a man who would be so hated and despised by the very people he had come to offer salvation. Mary would one day be an eyewitness to the large crowds of unbelievers who would mock, spit upon, ridicule, and scorn the son of the living God, the perfect spotless lamb, as he hung on a cross to offer up his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. And what did this type of reaction reveal about the, the thoughts and the hearts of those who opposed him? Revealed their pride, their self-righteousness, and self-reliance. They refused to believe that they could not be made right with God on their own. They refused to place their faith in Jesus as their Savior because their pride blinded them and kept them from believing in his message. James 4, 6 warns us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so before we move on, I just must ask you all this question. How have you responded to the fact that the Savior lovingly and willingly offered up his life as an all-satisfying atoning sacrifice for sin? Have you truly recognized and admitted that you cannot on your own save yourself? That apart from turning from your sins and turning towards Christ for salvation, placing your full faith in him alone, you have no hope of being saved. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, illustrates this type of humble faith so well, where it states, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We all, like those prophesied in this text by Simeon here, are given two choices to make. 
We either choose to respond to Jesus Christ as our Savior in faith, or we willfully reject him to our own demise. And so humbly respond to your Savior in faith and find a comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, yesterday, uh, Callie and I went and saw the Christmas Carol over at uh, in Wana Creek. And um, it's the first time I had seen that, that play in person. I've watched the movie many times. I like the Muppets Christmas Carol, personally. I don't know if we've got any Muppets fans out there. Uh, I always try and watch that one every year. But, um, you know, I was, I was kind of floored at my experience in the theater because the opening of the whole performance uh, opens with singing carols about the coming Messiah, uh, about uh, God and sinners being reconciled, and about peace on earth. And I, I wondered as we sat through that performance how many people heard and knew that Christmas was about Jesus, and they knew the song so well, and yet they had either willfully rejected that these carols, these these. Uh, Worship songs were actually true, um, or, or maybe in their, their um, blindness that they just didn't recognize it. Either way, um, we all need God's grace to believe these things. And, um, and so I understand that, that many of us here in this room uh, stand in the category of those who've recognized their need for a Savior, and they've responded to Him in faith. And so as I close my message, I want to look at the final two ways for us to respond in light of these realities of our salvation, to encourage us not to grow numb to these glorious truths, and help us savor savor our Savior this season. So to help us do this, I want to look at the rest of our text together as we turn now to Anna and see how she not only recognized her need for a Savior, not only did she respond to Him in faith, but she, in light of these truths, rejoiced in her Savior and resounded her Savior to the world around her. And so my two final points to the message today to help us savor our Savior this season are rejoice in your Savior and resound your Savior to the world. So let's go back and do our text looking at starting in verse 36. There was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, Anna is is an encouraging and at the same time convicting model of piety and godliness for us all to follow this morning. For 84 years... She had been faithful to show up to the temple and to pray and to fast. And the text here says night and day. Anna had much she could have been distracted by. She could have become bitter at God for allowing her husband to pass at such a young age. She could have allowed the worries and cares of being a widow to distract her from focusing on her relationship with God. But Anna trusted in God to provide And not just for her physical needs, but Anna's main focus, her main concern, was on seeing God provide the Messiah who would bring the redemption of Jerusalem. As she prayed for and fasted for the coming of the Messiah, she could have grown weary over time and given up. And after all, 400 years had passed since the last time God had even spoken through the prophets. 
What hope did she have that God would provide a redeemer in her lifetime? And yet God graciously shows favor to Anna. And while she happened to be in the temple praying and fasting for the Messiah to come, God allowed her to see and to recognize the Messiah who was being held in the arms of Simeon. Anna knew immediately that God had finally answered her prayers and the prayer of the faithful remnant of generations past. And now think of the overwhelming joy that she must have felt in this moment. 84 years of praying and fasting, and God finally answers her prayers. Look with me at verse 38 and see how she responds. In coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Imagine the excitement in her frail but mighty voice. The uncontainable smile on her face as she proclaimed to everyone around her that the redemption of Jerusalem had finally arrived. I wish I could hear her prayer of thanksgiving. 84 years of praying and fasting. I'm sure her prayer of thanksgiving was deeply profound and was spoken in such a way that it demonstrated a depth of love and intimacy with God that few before or after her have ever known. Perhaps she quoted a psalm like Psalm 149, which states, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes, place, it takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Perhaps Anna's proclamation of the redemption of Israel sounded similar to that of the psalmist in Psalm 71, which states, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You see, when we truly recognize our need for a Savior and we respond to him in faith, then we will in gratitude overflow and rejoice in his salvation. And we will resound the hope of our Savior like Anna did to the world around us. And now I don't know about you, but what I find most convicting about this text is how unlike Simeon or Anna I can be at times. Despite all that I have been given in Christ Jesus, my Savior, so easy for my worshiping to grow cold and stale as I find myself losing sight of the grace that I currently stand in. It's easy for me to take for granted the fact that I live on this side of the Messiah's coming, where I have the full canon of Scripture showing me exactly who this Messiah would be, who he was, and how I might be saved through him. I don't have to wait to find out who this Messiah would be. I've encountered him. And so what is my excuse for not rejoicing in my Savior and resounding him to the world around me? Now, I could close this message with an overbearing, try harder, open your eyes, and keep them fixed on your Savior. 
Muster up the faith that you need to then overflow with rejoicing. Be bolder in resounding your Savior to the world. But the reality is that you and I will never be able to measure up to giving Christ all that he deserves. We will never give Christ the devotion and adoration he is truly owed. And while I genuinely do want to live a life that savors my Savior, I recognize that I fail at doing so daily. And yet, despite our many shortcomings, our Savior loves us and he meets us in our weaknesses. In reality, it is only because of Christ Jesus, our resurrected Savior, and his finished work on the cross that we are even enabled to do any of these things at all. He is the one who continually supplies us with the grace and faith we need to press on, to keep on savoring him. And so as we close our service today, we're going to sing together in full confidence, reminding ourselves of the truth that while we strive to savor our Savior in the ways that he deserves, Christ will meet us in our weakness and work through us, helping us by his grace to recognize more our need for him, helping us to respond more to him in faith, helping us to rejoice more and more in his salvation and enabling us and strengthening us to resound his salvation to a lost and dying world around us. May he alone receive all of the glory and honor due him now. Let's pray together. Father, as we prayed earlier, we just want to stop and recognize and give thanks to you for sending us your son Jesus to undeserving people who, um, apart from your grace, would have rejected him. But you've opened the eyes of so many. You've given sight to the blind. You've enabled us to even see Christ for who he really is. You are the one that gives faith as a gift. And apart from your grace, we would have never believed in Christ. We would have never received him. But there are many in this room today who can testify of coming to know Christ, coming to love Christ, and that is only because of your grace poured out on us. And so as we go to worship him now together through music, as we go to uh, proclaim that he is, he is the one that works in us, may we cling to him, cling to the hope that we find in him. And as we desire to savor our Savior this season, may we not pile guilt upon ourselves for our shortcomings, but run to Christ and his unconditional love as we look to him to provide for us and to change our hearts more and more to be in line with his. Lord, we need your grace to do that even now. And so we pray that you would use the words that were, were read this morning from your word to, to pour out grace on us, that we would cherish your son more, that we would worship him enthusiastically and that we would have the boldness to be able to proclaim the salvation and hope that we found in him to the world around us. Help us now. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.